Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. Hello, and welcome to the Trial Brief. I hope that you and your family are doing well and that you're safe and healthy during this crazy winter, spring, and summer of 2020. 2020 has been pretty much a year to forget in many ways, right? I almost look at 2020 as being the lost year. We've lost a lot. We've lost over 117,000 people to the coronavirus as of today. You may have lost a loved one. You may have lost an acquaintance. You may have lost a coworker to the virus. You may have lost your job. You may have family members who have lost their jobs. You may be under extreme economic pressures right now. You may have lost the opportunity to watch your son or daughter or relative graduate and get their diploma in person. And they lost out on that experience as well. 2020 also has the weight of social unrest hanging over us on top of all of this. We have seen the gross injustice that exists, and we're becoming more aware and and more understanding of what is happening and what the issues are. But we see, along with peaceful protests, we see violence. We see police violence. We see violence of looters who really have no interest in protesting anything. They have an interest in in smashing and burning. However, with all of the the negativity around 2020 to date, I think there, there are some really important and positive things that we can take from this and that we can use to build on. One of those things is the growing awareness of the Black Lives Movement. This recognition, it's now becoming a wider recognition and understanding that change has to take place now, that we are way beyond overdue. And I've heard it referred to as the overdue awakening. And that's exactly what it is. We have now realized that we need changes now in the way we police our towns, our cities, and our states. And we need changes in our attitudes and the way we look at uh, policing, the way we look at our fellow citizens. Now, there clearly is a call for systemic change, and systemic change is necessary. And I talked about that a little bit in episode one, where we talked about some of the possible remedies and possible actions that can be taken to affect this systematic change. And if you haven't listened to episode one, I, I urge you to go back and take a listen. Now, since that episode last week, a lot has happened. It might as well have been another year passed by in the course of a week, because what we've seen over the last week is these drastic changes to the way we police. And one of the first things, and I'm, I'm going to tell you what's happened here in New York uh, over the last, let's say, four days. Well, the legislature has, has passed a number of, of measures, uh, three very important measures uh, that go a long way to bringing us forward on this issue. The first thing is that it is now a criminal offense for the New York City Police Department and other departments to use a chokehold. Now, previously, police department rules barred the use of that technique, but now an officer who uses a chokehold is committing a felony. The second measure, what we talked about in episode one with the repeal of section 50A of the civil rights law, where now police disciplinary records can be accessed upon request. So if an officer is involved in a shooting or some other questionable action, the public will be able to see 
whether that officer has been the subject of any past complaints. Now that may add context to our understanding of the incident. And the third major measure is that now with the, the right to record police activity, there is now protection for witnesses and bystanders who make those videos. And as we see, those videos are really what got us here. If those videos didn't exist, the awareness, we wouldn't have the awareness that we have today and change wouldn't be taking place. So these three things are, are major, major steps forward. In fact, it's just not New York that is effectuating these, these changes. A similar reckoning is occurring across the nation. Lawmakers in various states are weighing changes to police tactics that may exacerbate racial disparities in, in law enforcement. For example, in California last week, Governor Gavin Newsom called for an immediate end to the use of what they called strangleholds, saying that that kind of use of force has no place any longer in the 21st century with respect to uh, practices in policing. In Washington, if you remember, authorities were using tear gas and rubber bullets to clear peaceful protesters in Washington, D.C. Now, D.C. has passed sweeping series of changes, including prohibiting the use of these chemical irritants, uh, riot gear, stun guns, uh, and that kind of thing on demonstrators who are exercising their First Amendment rights. These are very, very important changes that are sweeping the nation. Even Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa signed a similar measure into law last week, which was passed by the legislature the night before, which included a ban on most police chokeholds and empowered the state attorney general to investigate police misconduct. In addition to those much-needed changes, we're seeing change in our attitudes, and we're seeing people who never had an interest or an understanding of the Black Lives Matter movement, and that could have been for a variety of reasons. It could have been just they were unaware of it, they live in a bubble in their community, or that they have willful ignorance of the injustices taking place, or they just didn't care. But that's changing. And we see it changing by we see the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who have taken the streets in peaceful protest and in peaceful support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's not just the states. Now Congress is taking up reforms, banning chokeholds, and taking other various measures on the federal level. This movement is all about accountability, fairness, and justice. And that leads me into the next thing I want to discuss, and that is the issue of the suspension of jury trials in the country due to the coronavirus. You may say, well, what does that have to do with what you were just talking about? Well, we're talking about accountability, fairness, and justice. And jury trials, as you may remember from civics class in fifth grade or, or social studies in middle school, Jury trials are the cornerstone of our democracy. Our founding fathers thought so highly or thought of jury trials as being so important that they included them in the original Bill of Rights. You'll find them in the Constitution in the Sixth and Seventh Amendments. You know, if you think about it, the jury trial or serving on a jury allows you to participate directly in one of the three branches of government. Again, going back to fifth grade or middle school to separation of powers and the three branches of government. You have the executive branch, which enforces the laws. You have the legislative branch, which makes, which makes the laws. And you have the judiciary branch, which interprets those laws. So you, as a jury and as a juror, have a direct impact and direct participation in the judiciary branch. When you serve on a jury, 
and you reach a verdict in a case, whether it's criminal or civil, you had the power to decide the case, not a judge, not a panel of judges, you, citizen. And jury trials are what protect us from tyranny, from power being held in one branch or in one person, because the jury trial is the opposite of tyranny. The purpose of a jury trial is to find the truth. It's to determine the facts. The jury trial in America is a constitutional right. The founding fathers believed that the right to be tried by a jury of your peers was so important that it merited inclusion in the highest law of the land. And you see it in amendments six and seven of the Bill of Rights. And it was such a vital part that the founding fathers knew that jury trials prevent tyranny. Now, the definition of tyranny is oppressive power exerted by the government. Tyranny also exists when absolute power is vested in a single ruler. Jury trials are the opposite of tyranny because the citizens on a jury are given the absolute power to make the final decision. We should be very, very proud of our jury system. It is a unique part of America's democracy. Look around the world. Yeah, some countries have a form of trial by jury, but it is not the true trial by jury system that, that we have. And it's something we should be very, very proud of. And it has served us well for all these hundreds of years. What jury trials provide is a method of peaceful dispute resolution. Now, most people, I think you will be impacted at some point in your life uh, by conflict, whether it's a divorce, a personal injury due to negligence, a contractual dispute, an employment dispute. There are many ways to resolve disagreements. And we all try to work those things out, right? Parties try to work out uh, their disagreements, but when we can't, the jury trial is the way that we use to come to a final, peaceful resolution of the matter. You know, the function of the jury to resolve these disputes peacefully, that's what makes us a civil society, and that's what keeps the peace. Now, think back to the Wild West, right? You had a dispute out in the Wild West in, in lawless country with someone. How was that resolved? Well, a lot of times that was resolved with a duel. Each of you took a pistol, stood back to back, you walked 10 paces, you turned around, you shot, and whoever survived won the dispute. And in the criminal realm, if you are accused of a crime, you have the right to ask for a jury of your peers to judge your guilt or innocence. In a civil case, a jury of citizens will determine community standards and expectations. We do not want judges and lawyers making every important decision because they are not representative of the people of this country. So why am I bringing this up? Why am I talking about this? Well, quite simply, jury trials, not just here in New York, but across the country, have been suspended due to the coronavirus. And what does that mean? Well, it means we have a vast number of people across this country who are awaiting trial for criminal charges. We have a vast number of people who have been injured as the result of negligence, recklessness, and carelessness of either a company or a corporation or an individual who are waiting for their day in court. And again, this goes back to accountability, to fairness, and to justice. Right now, I'm worried in the long term about wrongdoers not being held accountable for their actions. And I'm worried about criminal defendants not getting fair trials or speedy trials that they're entitled to under the Constitution. I'm a trial lawyer, and I've been trying cases for about 30 years. I've tried criminal cases and civil cases as well, and selected hundreds multiple hundreds of juries throughout my career. My experience has been that jurors 
when they show up for jury duty are not happy campers, right? You probably have gotten a jury summons uh, at least once in your life, and that was really the last thing you really wanted to get. And that's understandable, right? Because you're being asked to take time away from your family, away from your work, away from your friends, away from just doing it everything you really want to do, uh, to have to go to court all day, sit there, the dread that you have that you're going to be chosen to sit on a case. And I think that's the normal reaction when, when jurors come into the jury room. I sometimes ask them when I, uh, one of the first questions I ask a, a room full of jurors is, uh, of potential jurors is, please raise your hand if you want to be here. And of course, you don't get any of the hands. But if you've served on a jury and you've reached a, a verdict in a case, I think you would have a much better, and my experience has been from speaking to jurors who decide cases, uh, that that all changes, that they realize the importance, the magnitude, and the responsibility that they have. And they they not only appreciate it, but they really, really, they, they relish it and they want to do it again. Now, I also pose to prospective jurors, you know, I, I, I acknowledge obviously that it's an inconvenience and it's the last place they want to be. But I also ask them to think about what are they asked to do in return for the freedoms that they have? Really, what are you asked to do? We ask you to vote, but you don't have to. It's your decision. You can choose not to vote. All of the things that we can do to participate in the governance of our country is voluntary, right? Well, of course, we're all required to obey laws. Right. But that that's part of the social contract. That's not really something you're asked to do in return for your freedoms. That that's more of what you're asked to do as part of the social contract. Right. Don't don't steal. Don't kill anybody. And we'll all get along. But what are we asked to do? You can serve in the military. That's voluntary. We're not forced to do that. You don't have to do that if you don't want to. You do have to pay your taxes. That's not voluntary. But really, other than jury duty, what are you really asked to do? What are you asked to sacrifice for the, all of the freedoms and rights that you have as an American citizen? We ask you to take some time out of your life to resolve someone else's case and someone else's dispute. And we do that because, one, of course, it's peaceful, it's orderly, and it's efficient. But second, it's because you may need that yourself one day. You may need a jury of your peers to resolve a dispute that you may have. Now, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, how, how do we accomplish jury trials? As of now, the in-person jury trial has been suspended, not just in New York, but in many other states. And that's pretty obvious. The reasons are pretty obvious. You know, the way it normally works pre-COVID is that you report for jury duty. You're in a large jury room with the rest of the jury pool. You're in close proximity. And sometimes the rooms are small. Most of the time you're elbow to elbow and sitting for long periods of time in that situation. If you are chosen as a juror, you're then required to be sitting elbow to elbow in a, in a courtroom with witnesses and judges and court officers and court personnel. You're required to take elevators. You're required to sit in, in small jury rooms. You're basically required to do everything that we're told not to do right now. And which makes the, the jury trial in person a very, very difficult task. So many states are experimenting with the virtual jury trial. And I'm going to hold off on discussions of the particulars of those virtual jury trials for another episode. But virtual jury trials pose a very big problem for litigants, I believe. 
And the juror's job is to scrutinize evidence. It's to determine the credibility of witnesses. And trials are about feel. It's about, a lot of times it's your observations that give you these gut reactions. And whether you're a lawyer who's cross-examining a witness or whether you're a juror evaluating the testimony of the witness, you rely on that in-person feel. You rely on nonverbal cues. You rely on the demeanor, the, the mannerisms of the witness. And trials are also about connections, interpersonal connections between not only witnesses and the jury, uh, between lawyers and witnesses. And I'm not sure how that translates on video. I've also found that the jury deliberation experience requires, during the course of a trial, jurors bond. They, they form bonds together. Now, it may be a very small bond. It may just be knowing a little bit, some little facts about a fellow juror. It may be, you know, knowing whether they have children, what their children do, what their husband does, what their wife does, little things. Or, or it could be more personal bonds that, that exist during the course of a trial that could last two weeks, two months, and, or even longer. Those relationships and that bonding, very, very important, I think, when it comes to the deliberations, you know, because they trust each other, they rely on each other, and they work together uh, to come to a, a fair and just verdict. And I really worry how that's going to take place virtually. I worry about the ability of the lawyer to communicate with the client. I worry about me as the trial lawyer. Communication between me as the lawyer and my client is crucial during a trial. And I worry that that will be lost in a virtual setting. And that's even more so of a problem in the criminal trial. In a criminal trial, there's a constitutional right for the criminal defendant to confer with his attorney. And in fact, during criminal trials, the attorney is constantly communicating with the criminal defendant during the trial. And I think there are so many constitutional hurdles that have to be overcome in order to give a defendant a fair trial or any party in a, in a, in a case a fair trial uh, if it's done virtually. But time will tell, and it's a work in progress right now. And uh, some states, I know Texas uh, held a, a jury trial, more than one jury trial by now, through Zoom. And I know other states are experimenting with it as well. But no one knows when, here in New York, we will be able to begin in-person jury trials again. This is unsettling in so many ways. Lawyers uh, here in New York have been working with the courts to try to come up with solutions to this problem. And of course, the court's priority is the administration of justice, but they also have a priority and a responsibility to the judges in the courthouse, to the litigants, to the court personnel, to jurors, and to anybody else who comes into those courthouses to do business. So for my very brief closing argument here, justice delayed is justice denied. And unfortunately, that's the situation that so many people are in today with the suspension of jury trials, not just here in New York, but all, all over the country. When there are no jury trials, there cannot be accountability, there cannot be fairness, and there cannot be justice. So we must, we will be working harder to find solutions, to find answers on how we can accomplish those three things in light of the the pandemic that uh, we're in the midst of now. We must find answers 
solutions to this problem. I have many clients who have waited a very long time for their day in court. And I have many clients who are under enormous economic pressures. And that's due to either uh, losing their job or due to not being able to work because of injuries they sustained as the result of someone else's negligence. The courts and the lawyers are working very hard to come up with solutions and answers on how we can get back to jury trials as soon as it's safe and as soon as possible so that we can protect the rights of our citizens. We're going to have to come up with some creative and effective solutions because this virus isn't going anywhere soon. The courts are open now, handling conferences virtually, handling emergency matters virtually. So there is progress being made, but when it comes to jury trials and reinstating jury trials, we have a lot of work to do. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week on The Trial Brief. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.